Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we continue our look at the statewide ballot measures on the November ballot with a proposition aiming to cap property taxes amid skyrocketing housing values. And although the season may be over for the Colorado Rockies, we'll meet someone who's already planning for her next 16 years, ushering fans at Coors Field. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Registered voters should be receiving ballots in the mail starting this weekend for the November 2nd election. This year, there are three statewide ballot questions. Proposition 119 would raise taxes on marijuana to help fund tutoring programs for students outside of the classroom. And Amendment 78 aims to give state lawmakers more control over emergency spending. Today, we wrap up our look at these questions with Proposition 120. With home values skyrocketing, Colorado voters have a chance to significantly lower their property tax bills. But Proposition 120 is more complex than it seems. KUNC's Scott Franz has more on how it's pitting conservatives, educators, and state lawmakers against one another in a high-stakes battle that could stretch on even after Election Day. Financial analyst Chris Brown says it would take more than a single beer to explain all the nuances of Proposition 120 to the average voter. It's touted as a permanent 9% property tax cut for business and homeowners. But it really might be the case that what voters see on their ballot and what they vote on is not the final outcome in terms of the impact to their tax bill. Brown is a researcher at the nonpartisan Common Sense Institute based in Greenwood Village. The state legislature this year passed Senate Bill 293, which intentionally changed and altered some of the property tax classifications. This resulted in a lowering of property taxes by about $200 million for the next fiscal year. But knowing that this measure was in the works, the bill also had a side effect, limiting who could actually get a tax break if Proposition 120 passed. This appears to be a poison pill against the proposition. Republicans, including Senator Ray Scott of Grand Junction, were concerned lawmakers were trying to water down a tax cut being pursued by voters. If taxpayers, single-family homeowners in particular, approve it, only multifamily property owners get a 9% break. But Senator Chris Hansen, a Denver Democrat, defended the legislation, saying single-family homeowners should be treated differently because governments tend to spend more money providing services to them, from trash collection to firefighters. And some studies have shown that as much as a 50% reduction in capital investment and a 15% reduction in service costs for high-density developments. In other words, letting single-family homeowners get another tax break would result in a much bigger hit to the state's checkbook. Again, layers of complexity here. Which brings us back to today. Chris Brown says the battle over Proposition 120 may not end on Election Day. If voters approve this, the, the final impact will be determined in courts And this is already on the mind of conservative activist Michael Fields. As the author of Proposition 120, 
He says he would probably be the one suing the legislature if it passes. This is money that is not in people's pockets then. They're spending on taxes. You know, what other things do they struggle with when, when government you know, has bounced back quicker than anybody expected? Fields says property values have gone up rapidly during the pandemic, adding that lawmakers did not go far enough with their tax cuts. But others are involved, including local governments, fire departments, and school boards, all stand to lose hundreds of millions of dollars if voters agree to the ballot question. Studies suggest it would hurt the most in resort counties like Pitkin and Eagle. It just exacerbates the inequities that exist within our communities. That's Amy Baca Olert. She leads the Colorado Education Association, the state's largest teachers union. Those communities that have been able to go to their voters and to ask for voters to, um, you know, raise their taxes to support their local school districts. And even when that happens in some communities, because they have a lower property tax base, it's not the same as that happening in, you know, say maybe the neighboring community. But many are struggling because of the pandemic, and supporters like Fields say they need relief now. I think about people on fixed incomes, seniors, people that are living paycheck to paycheck, you know, a big increase in property taxes can have a big impact in them keeping their houses over the long term. Certainly, we have all struggled, especially recently through COVID. But Olert hopes voters will also think about the ripple effects. I would hope that people would take the time, um, I guess, as any good educator would say, to do your homework, to really understand what are the unintended consequences of voting on something like this could have. If Proposition 120 is approved and courts do not overturn the law the legislature passed, Chris Brown says the immediate impact of 120 would shrink from $1 billion in cuts to about $150 million, and only commercial, multifamily, and lodging properties would get tax breaks. Regardless, Brown says school districts would be shielded somewhat by the billions in federal coronavirus relief money they've been getting. Now, it's not a perfect one-to-one match in terms of being able to use those COVID dollars in the same way. However, a lot of that money can be used to fill priorities and needs. Opponents of 120 counter that permanent tax cuts could reduce the state's ability to respond to wildfires that are larger because of ongoing drought. To cushion the blow, supporters included a provision letting the state keep up to $25 million annually that it otherwise could not spend because of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or Tabor Amendment. I'm Scott Franz in Denver. All of our stories on the statewide ballot questions can be found at KUNC.org. Depending on who you ask, this year was less than stellar for the Colorado Rockies. From the loss of arguably their best player, Nolan Arenado, during the offseason, to the team performing worse on the road than they did at home, it wasn't much of a surprise when the Rockies ended their year this past weekend with 74 wins and 87 losses. 
For weeks, Rockies fans have known their team wasn't headed to the postseason, although many still showed up to watch the players finish off the season. But many also came out last week to spend time with one of the most valuable players off the diamond, Mary Odell. The 84-year-old Fort Collins resident is quite possibly the most popular usher in the ballpark's history. Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber attended a Rockies game last week to speak with her. It's a Tuesday night at the end of September, and at Coors Field in Denver, a handful of Rockies fans are making their way to their seats. Granted, this game is kind of meaningless. The Rockies, a fourth-place team, are facing off against the Nationals, a fifth-place team. Neither is bound for the playoffs. But despite a lackluster end of the season, Coors Field sections 125 and 126 are packed with fans. That's because many of them didn't really come out to watch the Rockies play. A lot of them came for Mary. Mary Odell is an usher, and at 84 years old, the Fort Collins resident is the longest serving one at the stadium. So it's no surprise that she's got some fans of her own. A big part of the reason we come to the Rockies games is to see Mary all the time, because she cheers us up and it's great to see her. She's always like smiley and friendly to all of us, and fun presence to be around. We've got the best section because Mary's our usher. But despite her reputation as a larger-than-life usher and dedicated baseball fan, Mary wasn't always this way. When I grew up, I was very shy. I was a skinny, shy little girl with long red hair, and I had a lot of freckles, and I just was a shy little girl. And then as I got older, I just blossomed into something else. Mary was raised in an isolated rural area, which is why now she loves having a job where she gets to interact with people every day. I grew up on a farm in upstate New York near Syracuse as a poor farmer's daughter. And we didn't have anything and I milked cows by hand and made all of my own. um, I had to make all the um, butter and uh, all homemade bread and we lived off on the farm. We didn't go to the store for anything. We are very, very poor. But I think when you grow up as being poor, you have good values. And values are people that are loving and caring. And that's what I like in my people I have. Not everybody is like that, but most everybody is. Mary is the only surviving member of eight siblings. She has two children and another daughter who passed away in 2002, six grandchildren and 13 great-grandchildren. But at Coors Field, her family is even larger. Oh my gosh, she's one of the reasons we look forward to coming to these games. Dina Martin has been a regular in Mary's section for about 10 years. She's the first thing you see, and she's always happy, she's excited, and she is a fan through and through, and it's contagious. And I have never seen anything anywhere like, you know, how people greet Mary and how she greets people. There is not a stranger to Mary. She treats everyone amazing, and... She's just, she's just unbelievable. We're so lucky to have her. Baseball, apple pie, and Mary. Dina's husband, Bob. She, she runs a tight ship. That's what I like. We, we've been to other ballparks, and you know, people come and go up and down the aisles, and it's kind of annoying. Mary, she takes care of us. We like it. <laughs> Mary knows the impact she has on her fans, which is why she plans to stick around for as long as possible. How long do you plan to stay working at Coors Field? Until I'm 100, I'm going to outlive Dick Monford. Uh, this is Dick Monford. I'm uh, one of the owners of the Rockies. 
The Montfort family is actually the main reason Mary is here today. After 16 years working as a meat packer for the Montfort Company in Greeley, Mary was laid off in 1998. Dick Montfort's brother Charlie encouraged her to apply to Coors Field, where she's worked ever since. She's, you know, she's a cornerstone of all our ushers and the people that work here. And, oh, I mean, I, she's friendly, always bubbly, has got a good personality, and I think people just uh, migrate to her and a lot of like being around her. Mary said she's uh, planning to outlive you and work here until she's 100. What do you think about that? I think it'd be great. And I don't think she'll have much problem outliving me. At the end of the game, fans lined up in front of Mary once again. Not to get their tickets checked, but to get their hugs. You'll be good. I'm getting a second hug. Second hugs. You take two? Oh, my God, Mary, please. <laughs> Mary, thank you. You are the best. But of course, these goodbyes aren't forever. Mary's only 84. And remember, she's not retiring until she's 100. That's 16 more years to go. Alana Schreiber, KUNC. listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Concerns about sending kids back to school have mostly revolved around the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. But with a longer wildfire season, smoke is also finding its way into the classroom from poor air quality days. Maggie Mullen has more and how one University of Colorado professor is helping to determine if it's safer for kids to stay home or be in school. It's one of those days in late September when the air is crisp and cool, what many runners call perfect conditions. This is like my kind of weather. That's Miraja Pease. She's a junior on the Tongue River High School cross-country team in Northeast Wyoming. This season, the weather hasn't always been so ideal for their afternoon practices. Like when it's smoky, it just like dries your throat and it's kind of hard to like breathe and try to motivate yourself to keep going, especially during like an actual race. Coach Lane Parrish says in the past, he mostly looked at the weather forecast for temperatures and rain or snow to see if it would be a good day for practice. Now he has other concerns. This year we've had to look at air quality index and especially in the first week, it was bad. Earlier in the season, the AQI rose above 100, which is considered unhealthy for children. Parrish says when it gets that bad, the team takes a bus up Black Mountain, where conditions tend to be better. But researchers say wildfire smoke is an increasing threat to children. And the problem isn't just outside. When smoke's around for a long time, contaminated air ends up indoors, like in a classroom or school gym. Roy Anderson is the emergency manager for the Washoe County School District in Nevada, which includes Reno. So we really had some poor, really poor air quality days um, where we actually did have to close school. Last year, the district moved classes online 10 separate days because of wildfire smoke. 
That's also happened several times this fall. Anderson says there's not an exact AQI that will cause the district to cancel school. Instead, they consider a number of things, like weather patterns and how long kids waiting for the bus might be exposed to hazardous air. Anderson says coming up with a policy was a challenge. When we were doing our research for looking at what, you know, what other districts do, um, there really wasn't a lot of guidance out there. Since then, the federal government has provided some help. In June, the Environmental Protection Agency and two other groups released interim guidelines for schools as well as commercial and public buildings. The guidelines describe how schools can reduce pollutants from wildfire smoke. They're called particulates, and some are so small they can travel deep into the lungs and even enter the bloodstream. Sarah Cofield is an air quality specialist with the Missoula City County Health Department in Montana. She says the guidelines are a really critical step. Here's why. There is not actually a standard for indoor air quality. There is no requirement that your indoor air um, have a reduced particulate concentration. So it is a bit of a free-for-all right now. In other words, schools aren't required to test or clean air that is contaminated by wildfire smoke. And new research suggests that indoor air isn't necessarily cleaner. So while the new guidelines don't set enforceable standards, Cofield says building managers have a good place to begin. There's more to it than just even replacing the filter with a better filter. For example, building managers need to see if their HVAC system can handle a higher efficiency filter before adding it. Plus, air sensors can tell them how bad the problem is. Colleen Reed is a geography professor at CU Boulder who researches environmental impacts on health. She says Denver schools stay open if the air quality is better there than at children's homes. But here's the problem. No one has that data. And Reed just received an EPA grant to do just that. She and a group of researchers will place air sensors in Denver area schools and homes to get a better idea if it's safer for kids to stay home or go to school. Meanwhile, the EPA is working with industry to come up with final guidelines on keeping indoor air safe. Those are expected in 2022. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Maggie Mullen. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. Last week, we aired a story about Loveland's history of excluding Black people as part of our series on sundown towns. Today, we're looking at other groups affected by that racist history. According to 2020 census data, Hispanic or Latino residents currently make up about 13 percent of Loveland's population. Around 3 percent are Native American. The Adami and Crespin family can trace their mixed Mexican and Native American ancestry for over 100 years in the city. Some members created Heart and Soul, a nonprofit aiming to foster Loveland's diversity through advocacy and co-organizing events like listening sessions and the city's first Juneteenth celebration this summer. KUNC's Adam Reyes met three generations of that family in Loveland's North Lake Park to hear their experiences with racism and exclusion over the past few decades. My name is Bob Adami. I was born in 1948. Our family lived here out on 402 on a farm, but we were regarded as second-class citizens. We paid a price for that. It has stayed with me my entire life. 
My name is Lynn Adami. I am 53 years old. I was born in the late 60s, but the whole vibe, we knew that we were different. It's like we were conditioned to know our place in this town. It was still a segregated community. My great-grandmother, she had to fight for her ability to own a home. Yeah, segregated in the sense that black people were not allowed to be within the city limits after hours, and brown people were allowed to stay because they needed us. They needed laborers. And we were already here. When we sold the farm in 56 and moved over to the west side of town, I was not allowed to go to the nearest grade school. We were told my place was at Washington School on the east side. I've got an article from the Reporter Herald dated September 30th, 1980, and the lead article title says Loveland Hispanos See Poor Police Relations. Sitting at the table are my mom, her sister, and my great-grandma. During my uh, early years, when um, my family never, not once, ever ate in a restaurant in this town. So there's a lot of fighting for your rights. I suppose there were some places that would have served us, but by not eating at any of the restaurants, it, it saved them the embarrassment of having to be ushered out of the door. I have four nephews, all five years apart. They've all experienced someone telling them, go back to Mexico. Frankly, we were here first, and here we are in Loveland. It's, I feel like it's going back to being worse again. I also remember that when we moved in the first couple of weeks, people didn't want us there. They egged our house every night. As bad as it may have felt when I was young, I wish it were like that again because it's, I don't feel safe here anymore again. I named my daughter Caitlin. I wanted to name her Catalina, but I thought that's too ethnic. I want her to have a chance, so I named her Caitlin. And I kicked myself. I should have named her what I wanted to name her. A lot of people will say, gosh, people, like, let it go. It was so long ago. Like, it's not you, right? My name is Caitlin Weirich. I'm 32 years old. And the thing that I would say is, like, it's still happening today. The difference is, we aren't going to accept being treated this way. My name is Albina Crespin. I am 71 years old. My name is Albina, and people always call me different things, and I answer to it, but I always correct them. But, um, you know, when I was growing up, I hated my name, you know, because they called me pot of beans, bean, beaner. I volunteered at a, at a school when I was saying the kids' names that were um, Mexican, when I say it like how it's supposed to be said, I saw them light up because it matters. It matters who you see that's in your leadership. Since Caitlin had her baby. I have a biracial son. And his name is uh, Sebastian. Well, no, it's not Sebastian, it's Sebastian. And I am terrified for the experiences that he will have. And I told her, even before he was born, he's going to speak Spanish because I'm gonna teach it to him. And I'm determined that he is going to not be ashamed that he's African-American, Mexican-American, Native American. What if you weren't sure what would happen to your son or your daughter because they were a different color? 
I never saw the signs, but I knew that if there was anybody of different color that they had to be out of town by sundown. There were other signs like a fountain. No Mexicans or dogs allowed. While it's very easy for people to forget what my grandparents went through. Signs into restaurants where it said no Mexicans allowed. Even in the early 60s it was still there. Um, and to say everything's fine and that there's no problems. The hostility, the racism was, was so known back then. I carry that just knowing that they went through it and knowing that I, I still endure some of this treatment just in a different form and in different time from my dad's perspective, he carried the weight of being an immigrant. And so a lot of times he didn't even go to my school things when he could because he, he, <laughs> he didn't want to embarrass me, which I think just speaks to today's environment. There's a lost community that doesn't feel like they have the rights to even show up when they do. And that's another part of our work. There is a part of our community, and it's very exciting, that wants to see more diversity, celebrate different cultures, be a part of different things, and that's very motivating. And I think there's some movement. There's also a large opposition. I told my grandchildren, don't be afraid to speak up and let people know how you feel, because you have a right to be able to tell them if they're wrong. And so the fight never ends. We continue to fight for our rights. We continue to be here. We continue to show up. And that'll never stop, I think, because it's our legacy. Caitlin Wyrick is running for Loveland City Council in the upcoming November election. You can read and watch more about their experiences and the city's history and find the entire Sundown Town series at KUNC.org sundown. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll explore how the Americans with Disabilities Act has influenced accessibility in the outdoors in its 31-year history. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.